Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. All right, welcome back to another episode. I am here with an actually a favorite of our podcast because I believe you still hold the record for the most listened to podcast and Macamerge podcast there, Dr. James Lim. So say hello to everyone. Hi guys, nice to see you all again, or, or hear from you all again. Wow, I didn't actually know there was a record. I didn't know. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly. Um, People really love that episode that you did about pediatric simulations. So I think that's really exciting. I think you also had a lot of stakeholders and that, and that, that kind of level of engagement also, you know, probably spread a little bit as well. So I think that's part of what, how we like to do things in Macmerge is to make sure that we're thinking about multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary collaborations. And I think that podcast knocked down the park, but we're bringing you back here solo today to talk about, I guess, a new concept that's kind of hitting the, hitting the waves, I guess, now um, around pediatric preparedness. Can you define what that term is for us? Yeah, well, um, I mean, first of all, I mean, just thanks for having me back here and giving me a, a chance to talk here. I think it's such a privilege to talk on this amazing podcast. The audience has grown and I think it really hits a big part of, of what we need here. So, yeah, this concept of pediatric preparedness is an interesting concept. It's actually not necessarily new. It's actually across like most of the developed Western world. It's a big concept. But in Canada, it's a concept that has just started to take root. And I think it's been something that we've been alerted to in the in the background uh, for a while, but I think there's been a, a lot of movement on that piece for now. What pediatric preparedness kind of refers to is the general preparedness of a general emergency department or, or any sort of emergency department in terms of caring for kids that present with medical emergencies. One of the great paradoxes I often think about, especially as a pediatric emergency physician practicing in a tertiary academic pediatric center, is the fact that like 85% of children with emergencies actually don't present to me. They present first to a general emergency department staffed by physicians that may not be as comfortable as children and in an infrastructure or a setting or a building that may not actually be optimized for children. So as much as the training and specialty and the care that we can provide in a, in a, in a PEDS emergency department, the great paradox is that 85% of the children that are having emergencies actually will show up somewhere else first rather than me. And that's been a big thing. I think that, uh, that a lot of places across North America in particular have recognized. And uh, it's something that I think in Canada is now starting to be, to be looked at more seriously because there are huge outcomes. We can talk a bit more of that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the pediatric simulation literature has shown that the more prepared you are, even within a children's hospital, um, you can actually change morbidity and mortality rates within actual, you know, like race calls or other kind of like, I guess you call them pace. But the idea of like that rapid access team and, and even drilling like experienced providers, people in pediatric centers doing ICU care, you know, like even that group, if they practice more um, and you practice more insights, you 
you're going to get more bang for your buck. You're going to change outcomes. You're going to resuscitate people earlier, notice them earlier. And I think it's about that outreach, just broadening the expertise of awareness and then how to like work as a team. All of those things, I think, really resonate with me and kind of are grounded in, in the principles behind kind of like workplace-based learning, right? Yeah, 100%. I think a lot of pediatric uh, simulation, which, you know, I'm really interested in as well, and I do a lot of, a lot of the simulation literature shows that that outreach simulation, that continuing education certainly improves your performance, even during simulations as well, too. But when it comes to pediatric preparedness, there's actually like strong epidemiological evidence from a system and from an ecological study perspective that like, the more prepared you are in terms of how you measure pediatric preparedness, the lower your mortality. And it's been shown across multiple domains um, when it comes to trauma care, uh, medical recess care, um, and like like survival from presenting to hospitals. So high level outcomes um, that are even beyond sort of educational level outcomes. We're talking about like clinical outcomes with pediatric preparedness. Okay. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? If you're more prepared, you can actually affect patient care outcomes. I think that's that's amazing, right? There's very few things in continuing education or really in the systems that we do that actually sometimes trickle down to the patient because there's so many other roadblocks. But so tell me more about what a really great preparedness package might look like. What does that look like for a community um, emergency department or even one of the academic emergency departments that largely serves adults? Yeah, I, I think you actually bring up a good point that like, Pediatric preparedness is on the onus of everyone, not necessarily academic versus community departments. It can also be like a pediatric emergency department versus a general emergency department. We all have to be prepared for children that show up that need emergency care. The concept of pediatric preparedness has been actually fairly well studied, and there's a number of metrics that have been used to sort of gauge that. Historically, so in the U.S. actually, there is a national pediatric emergency medicine project uh, funded through uh, an organization called the EMSC. And they have, in the US, they've actually measured across the country levels of pediatric preparedness. And there, in Canada, that actually hasn't happened yet. There's been a few publications in the past calling for it, but that hasn't necessarily happened just yet. Ontario in February of 2021 just launched an initiative through the Provincial Council of uh, Maternal and Child Health that looked at basically assessing uh, using a checklist uh, different domains readiness. And this is based off of, uh, of national data from the U.S. And they've kind of adapted this uh, readiness checklist for an Ontario setting. So the domains that you look at when it comes to to pediatric preparedness come to one thing that we mentioned earlier, Teresa, which would be training, your your level of ED staffing and training. But there's other domains as well, too. So those include the quality improvement and safety processes that are built into your facilities, the policies and procedures that are present, the presence of pediatric-specific equipment or supplies or actual pediatric-specific infrastructures, presence of pediatric coordination of care, within a center and also uh, outside of a center between centers and also like having a good understanding of the demographics and infrastructures that you that you serve those are all like, big domains that they look at okay so those are like i think really good for putting together like a bit of a strategic plan but for the average boots on the ground clinician what might this look like when we're actually you know like working 
in the department? Do we come in after hours? Do we do other things? Like, what, what would this look like? How would we make this happen? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. I think there's, number one is being adequately trained, I think, and being comfortable managing children. So I think there's a lot of educational outreach activities that are happening on that domain. There's a lot of improvement, I think, from our pediatric emergency side that we want to help provide more outreach education. So I think coming down the pipeline, we're expecting to do a lot more of that. Primarily, traditionally, that's been through outreach simulation efforts, but there's other efforts that we can sort of organize as well, too. I think being aware of the national organizations in Canada that help to use this. So uh, TREC is really the national organization in Canada that really helps improve the sort of high quality standard of care and, and utilization of those guidelines. So TREC so, is the Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids, so T-R-E-K-K. Um, and it's uh, you can find it at trekk.ca, and it's a collaboration across a number of pediatric uh, centers that kind of put together these, I guess, bench to bedside type guidelines and, and recommendations for, for different uses. Is that correct? Yeah. Totally. Um, so all the pediatric emergency departments in Canada are all networked together and as part of a big sort of research group, but there's a knowledge translation wing of that group and that is the TREC group and that exists primarily to help um, people on the ground uh, implement the highest level of evidence and cared for children. So they give lots of cool practical use tools like they have order sheets if you need for resuscitation. They have got like bottom line clinical recommendations. They have clinical pathways that you can easily implement and use. And they're all, again, network with your local or closest pediatric emergency department to help connect. So we're talking about like things that, you know, the ground level you can do. I think adequate you know training and staffing is, uh, of course, a requisite. I think it's, I think the other big thing I would talk about is just being very vocal and being aware of any potential shortcomings when it comes to managing children and locally advocating for what we call a champion in your department for a leader that can help manage this. So uh, we call them sort of pediatric emergency care coordinators is the formal term I would guess on this. But basically, it's someone that in your department that serves to advocate and serves to be the central resource to help improving kids. And I think that's been a resource that's increasingly been shown as one of the biggest things that actually promotes ground level change. Yeah, so basically having kind of a champion, I guess. Um, yeah. And, and do you think that that champion has to always be a doctor or can it be another healthcare practitioner or manager? What do you think? Absolutely. It doesn't have to be a physician. I think in some of the research that I've done, some of the research that I've collaborated with some of our U.S. partners, what we found is actually nurses are fantastic people for that role. In particular, nurse educators can be helpful for that. But what's actually been increasingly more powerful is the combination of one physician and a nurse working together as the sort of co-champions, because it really helps uh, target interprofessional collaboration in all really domains of care. Excellent. Okay, so walk me through then, what are some activities that you can imagine someone starting up with? Like, let's say you, you're like, sold by this podcast, you want to do this, you've reviewed Trek, you've got like, let's say, well, it's the winter time. So maybe we're getting prepared for gastro season. And, you know, thinking ahead, because this episode is, you know, it's still in the winter months. And, and what does that look like? Like, what do you foresee people actually kind of doing? You've got all these resources, you've downloaded all the pathways, you've got, you know, your nurse educators buying in, like, what do you foresee as a as an optimal kind of like, 
actual kind of like approach to something like that? Walk me through it. Yeah, of course. I think about kind of three first steps is probably a, a reasonable way to think about this. I think step number one is kind of understand the survey and the lay of the land of what you have and what you what are the gaps that you can fill. So the first thing I would actually look at doing is filling out a pediatric emergency department preparedness checklist or survey. You can go onto the website for the Provincial Council for Maternal and Child Health. If you just you know put that in a search engine and, and look that up, there is a page specifically looking at pediatric emergency department readiness. It's a bit of a comprehensive survey. It's 170 questions, but for someone that's interested in that, they can spearhead that and really fill that survey in. And that's, you know, designed specifically for Ontario emergency departments. And it's actually pretty uh, applicable, I would say, for other emergency departments throughout Canada. So by filling that survey out, you can really understand what are the domains that you can, that you can really change and improve on. I think step number two and sort of going along at the same time is really finding a leader locally that can really take that on as, as an initiative. And as we mentioned before, it could, doesn't have to be only a physician. I think, in fact, it, it's stronger if you have someone else other than a physician that can help with this because a lot of these processes and protocol rely heavily on nursing, nursing support. And then once you fill in some of those gaps, I think advocating with your local leadership about the importance of this piece. Education is still, you know, absolutely critical in that aspect, but having good leadership to follow up and make a number of these policy level changes are, are important. The final step I would say actually is then actually try and find your local closest pediatric emergency department or division in your region. I strongly believe that as a pediatric emergency department, as a member of, uh, of academia, as a member of a tertiary care pediatric hospital, like we have an obligation to help you out in this situation. So if you reach out to us, we are more than happy to help coordinate and help organize any outreach efforts that need to be had. And I can say that across all my colleagues uh, in Canada, I think we're all happy to collaborate with our general emergency department colleagues and community partners. Okay. Well, that sounds very interesting. And I think that there's lots of people just to click away. It looks like I was looking at the provincial council and their materials. I think you have to actually have someone actually email them for their ED readiness initiative, and they'll get back to you with probably that survey tool. It looks like they're going to be trying to tie each emergency department to actually a customized link. So I think they're trying to like make it digital. So that's nice. Uh, but uh, it sounds like having some de designated kind of like champions that can really take this and run with it is going to be really important. So all that change management stuff like Cotter and, and, you know, like John Cotter's eight stages of change and all the other stuff is probably going to come into play. And, and I think that the hardest part about any kind of big change process like this is really just to, you need that guiding coalition, but then you need to have some early successes. So I think that having things like, I think simulation actually has a great role in this because once you've got some preparedness, even if you're just doing a desktop simulation where you just sit around and say, okay, what would the workflow look like if you have a kid who is sick and septic and mottled looking because, you know, they're triage and their parents come rolling in, what are we going to do? Having that kind of like, thought process so that you can think through, do you have the right th equipment in the right place? I'm bringing some of that insight to knowledge in, um, even as a walkthrough, even if you don't actually have a little mannequin, even if you just buy a doll from like, you know, Toys R Us, you could probably actually, you know, do most of the key things. You're not going to have a high fidelity with mannequin, but sometimes that's not what you need, right? Especially with the systems difficulties that we have in paging or getting the right IVs, knowing where they are, 
all those little logistical things are what make the difference. So having some, some dry runs, having some inside to simulation to do some of this stuff, I, I think can be some of the preparedness and, and give you those early wins of figuring out how you can improve, right? Yeah, I I hundred percent echo that. You uh, you know me, I'm a simulationist at heart, and that's actually how I got into this uh, in this field to begin with. And I hundred percent agree. It doesn't have to be a high fidelity mannequin or simulation model. I think what it comes down to is, as you said, running through the processes, going through the cognitive steps that need to happen, going through these sort of checklists that are happening as well too, and in doing those sort of experiences, really keeping track of what our gaps are, having someone that can process and measure how we narrow those gaps and change over time will be important for to lead that. And, and I think it's a, from a simulation perspective, it's a very cool example of how simulation has that interface between not only education needs, but also, you know, systems, systems needs. And the cool thing you can find out about this is one of the things I've, I've actually learned by doing a lot of outreach simulation with our partners is that it's, you're going to actually pick up a lot of the cool safety to things or the things that we do really well that actually really improves childcare in the emergency department. And it's a great opportunity to really highlight the amazing things that we do as staff to care for kids. And that helps morale, that helps as an early success. And those are the things that really you can build upon as well too. And there are so many countless examples I can think of from all departments that I've encountered. All right, so I mean, I think that that totally gives me a vision for what this could look like. I think it's a really great mandate. I think the hardest part is going to be trying to figure out in the sea of all the other burnout and overwhelmed system, how do we fit this in? I think it's such an important priority though. So I'll throw that in the gauntlet to say, we need to think about it and we need to make time just like all the other important initiatives. I think sometimes we get too much in the rut of going over the day-to-day -day things that we don't take a step back and look at the big picture and figure out how we can really change patient care. I think that this is a call to arms to say maybe we should do that, especially for some of our most vulnerable people who are our children and be able to advance care for them. So thanks for the reminder. I think that's really important call to arms to periodically have you or some of your other colleagues come back to truly foster that. And thanks for joining us on this podcast. No worries. If there's one thing I can say about burnout, I've been thinking about this a lot recently as well too, about that element of burnout. And I think, you know, we're all burnt out in the emergency department side right now. And everyone here has been so inspiring in terms of the work that we've done. That doesn't need to be said again. I think about how we recover from burnout sometimes. And I think one of the things that sometimes helps is that sort of cognitive stimulation, the feeling that we're doing something and feeling that we can accomplish something, we're making change. And sometimes it's not about doing less work. It's actually doing work to us that matters and can make a difference and we can see that impact overall. And I think that th there's a number of things that we can do better. It doesn't have to be big, huge projects here and there right now. I think, as you said, these early wins are just like the great sort of momentum things that can help us recover from this. Um, kids have been disproportionately um, affected by this pandemic as well, too. And when we talk about pediatric readiness, you know, part of that also includes mental health readiness as well, too, right? And these are like, there's, there are things that we can do to really help that. And I think they're rewarding things that, that could help us heal and recover from this. So I think it's, it, it benefits children, of course, and that's the main reason we do it. But I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of room that we can help 
our, our own recovery and help us as a system grow stronger by and in partnership again with our patients and families that uh, by addressing these needs. Yeah, I think that what we all crave is to know that we've made a difference. And I think that's been the hardest part of the COVID pandemic is that we don't always feel like we've moved the mark. So I think that being involved in QI initiatives like this, quality improvement initiatives like this, being involved in actually affecting patient care or doing some of this advocacy work can actually give you that spark that you sometimes may have forgotten. Um, so I think that if if you're feeling especially burnt out, ironically, maybe rolling up your sleeves and doing something a little bit different might be the solution. It might not be for everyone. Obviously, if you're having trouble balancing, especially work life, then adding more work isn't going to make that happen, right? So I think that you have to think about whether or not it's something that you need. And and if so, it might be figuring out how you can get seconded or maybe just carve out some time in, in alternative ways maybe do a little bit less of some other kind of side gig you have to make room for some of these initiatives and, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. Right. I think we do need satisfaction in our jobs. That's what makes us resilient. I think is when we actually have successes. So I think you're right. Like trying to find a way to have some successes, maybe being part of a bigger team is important as well. I think this is where the advantage of leading on other providers who actually sometimes have more protected time, like a nurse manager or nurse educator whose, whose mandate is a little bit more aligned with some of this stuff can be really helpful. Yeah. Just always know that there is a, there, your colleagues in the PEDS emerge departments are always happy to help out. We have colleagues to help you out from that side too. Excellent. Well, it's always nice to have a friendly voice, a phone call away. And so thank you very much for taking the time to chat with us. And we uh, love hearing from you. So come back again. Thank you very much. Anytime. Uh, thank you for, again, the chances to, to talk with you guys all. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Residence Corner. As always, I'm Ben, one of the second year Emerge residents in the FRCP program here in Hamilton. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Monica Billick, one of our PGY1s in our Emerge program. I'm going to be speaking with Monica today about an app she has been developing, the Canadian EM Junior Learner Primer. Monica, welcome to Residence Corner. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. So can you tell me a little bit more about this app that you're developing, this Canadian Junior Learner Primer? Yeah, for sure. So the app is, as you said, the Canadian EM Junior Learner Primer. Um, I created it with other residents and med students at Mac under the supervision of Dr. Teresa Chan. We are super close to launching it now, which we're actually really excited about. But in essence, it's a resource for junior learners to use on shift. It provides an overview of approaches to key eMERGE presentations. Uh, so this includes things like differentials and managements, and is meant to summarize them in a bite-sized way, providing pearls and linking to other resources so that it's really optimized for use on shift. Wow, it sounds very useful. Something I, I'm definitely going to download once it's available, and something I would absolutely recommend to any medical students or other junior learners I'm working with on shift. Can you tell me a little bit more about who the target audience is and how you expect them to use the app? So the target audience would be people like myself, so junior learners that are rotating through Emerge. 
I think the thing that made Emerge super exciting for me is the same thing that makes it a bit daunting. So I think there's a huge breadth of patient presentations. Sometimes you're faced with presentations you haven't considered or had to approach in the past, and it can be a bit daunting to think about, like, where can I start even? So the app is meant to be used in that period between seeing the patient and reviewing with your staff and allows med students and junior residents to look up key relevant info and make sure you ask the patient all the key questions and considered all the appropriate diagnoses. So for example, if you see a patient with abdominal pain, the app will remind you of the top don't miss diagnoses and ways to rule them out. And then it'll also link to other resources if you want to do more reading about the topic afterward. How will users be able to use the app? Is there just a list of different presenting complaints? How will I know what to look up? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have a list of both presenting complaints and common diagnoses. And then you can kind of search through the list as you need to. And then we also have a page that um, has tags for things. So if something is tagged as part of, say, soft tissue infections, but it's really under another topic, then that'll come up under the tags as well. Amazing. I'm really looking forward to downloading this app and using it on Shift. Where will this app be able to be downloaded once it's released? So as of right now, we're hoping to have it be available on both the Android App Store as well as the Apple App Store. We're just working through the final details of that. Super exciting. Now, going back a step, first, can you tell me what the origination of the idea behind this app was? Because I know, uh, I believe there's some relevance to the COVID pandemic initially. The app that we created was based on the Canadian EM Primer. This was created initially at the start of the COVID pandemic when there was concerns about physician redeployment. So at that time, there was a Google form that was created by uh, Dr. Teresa Chan and others as a means to quickly look up info and resources for physicians on shift to kind of prepare them for things that they might not have faced or encountered since residency or medical school. We saw this as an opportunity to kind of change this and make it applicable for medical students and residents. It also fills that void of what is a quick way I can access resources on shift. So I think we're all quick to jump to things like up to date when we need information. And I think although up to date is a great resource, it's, you know, thousands of words on a particular topic. And sometimes that's not really the quickest way to access that information on shift. So we wanted to fill that void of what is a super quick, easy, bite-sized way to get all the information that I need about this particular patient so that I can present it in a reasonable way and that I can come up with a good plan and assessment. Tell me a little bit more about any pearls and pitfalls for app development for any aspiring app developers? The biggest thing that was a pearl for us was the value of teamwork and finding experts. I think creating an app seems like a huge undertaking, especially if you're someone like me who is naive to the world of app creation. So the key that we found was to work as part of a team and make sure that your team has all the right people. It would have been really difficult for a group of med students and now residents to learn how to create an app while finding all these resources and doing things like that. So we recruited Yusuf Yilmaz, who's currently completing his PhD in computer education, as well as a group of keen med students with prior experience in software design. And this kind of helped us fill in the gaps of app creation and things that we didn't know how to do, made creating an app feasible for even people that are not very tech inclined like myself. I think a second pearl that we found is is kind of as we just talked about, and, and it's the idea of not reinventing the wheel. So the thing that made this a lot smoother for us is that a lot of the legwork had already been done by the Canadian EM Primer. So this allowed us to create a resource that was targeted specifically towards medical students, but reworked what was already out there as opposed to creating brand new information. And I think these two things together really made the work associated with app creation feasible. I think when we're talking about pitfalls, I think the big thing is just to be realistic about app expectations. If you've never created an app before, you don't really know what can and can't be done easily and what things are challenging about app creation. So I think it's important to talk to your app guru about what is easy and what is challenging in an app. 
and where it's important to kind of spend your time and energy on creating. Yeah, it sounds like a very cool project and you've learned lots from the development. I know everyone will be looking forward to using the app once it's released. If anyone wants to listen a little bit more about this app development, I know you're already on a podcast called Specialty Scoop with Dr. Chan, where you explained a little bit more behind the development, if anyone wants to take a listen to that. Monica, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to seeing the Canadian EM Junior Learner Primer once it's released and sharing it with all the junior learners we work with on Shift. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ben. We're super excited and thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!